Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. I'm presenting a series of programs on the subject of the trial of the Lord Jesus, and today's program is a continuation of the previous broadcast. Now, in the previous broadcast, I was explaining the trial that Jesus was having before Caiaphas, before the Sanhedrin, who were assembled at his house. And I've been going through the details with regards to the laws that the Sanhedrin were violating while they were conducting this trial. And the main reason why I've been going through these details is to show you that while they were opposed to the Lord Jesus because he was not willing to live in obedience to all of their laws, neither were they. They weren't willing to live in obedience to their laws either. And I'm not saying that in an absolute sense. I am saying that in the context that in this circumstance they're willing to violate their own laws, but in other circumstances... I'm confident they would not have violated their own laws. It's just this situation. It's just their desire to get rid of him and that they are willing to go this far in order to find some way of getting rid of the Lord Jesus, that this is what they're willing to do. Now, at the end of the previous program, I was explaining that they passed judgment on the Lord Jesus. They declared that he was guilty, that he was worthy of death because they claimed that he had committed blasphemy And so they passed judgment against the Lord Jesus. And I was explaining all of the laws that they were violating by passing this judgment. Now, there's something very important to notice when they all agree that he is guilty and that he is worthy of death. And that is that they all condemned the Lord Jesus. I was reading through Matthew chapter 26, verse 66, where it says, What do you think? They answered, He deserves death. But there is a parallel passage that is found in Mark, in Mark chapter 14, verse 64, where it says that all of them condemned him to death. And this is a very important thing to notice, because if they all condemn him to death, then that means there is no one who is not condemning him to death. There was no one who was voting in his favor. They were all voting in favor of his conviction and of his execution. And the reason why this is important to notice is because there was a law of the Sanhedrin that stated that if anyone was ever convicted unanimously, then that person was innocent and they needed to be released immediately. The reason why was because the people recognized that there was no way for 23 to 71 Jewish men who were obviously very opinionated between being a Pharisee or a Sadducee or whatever, it was impossible for 23 to 71 elders to agree unanimously on anything unless a conspiracy was involved. That was the only way that people believed that this could be accomplished. And so there was this law that was established as part of the Sanhedrin that in the event that a unanimous decision was reached of guilt of somebody who was accused, then the person had to be released, 
That was a way of declaring that the person was truly innocent, but a conspiracy was taking place. Now, there were all these checks and balances that existed in their laws in order to try to protect people from being condemned and punished when, in fact, they were innocent. However, even though these laws were put in place, even though these laws were established, there needed to be someone who would enforce these laws. There needed to be someone who would recognize that these laws were being violated, and so they would stop the proceedings and set people free who were being condemned, who obviously were innocent. But there was no one who would do that. Even though these laws were put in place, there was no one available who would enforce these laws to ensure the integrity of the proceedings, to ensure the integrity of the Sanhedrin. And I really wanted to point that out. Now, continuing in Matthew chapter 26, verse 67, it says, Then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists, and others slapped him. Now, there's an awful lot that is described here, but it's very easy to just read past this and say, okay, then they were not very nice to him after they condemned him to death. But there's an awful lot more that's taking place here. There are many more laws of the Sanhedrin that they are violating when they do this. And so in just one verse, there's a lot of detail that I would like to go over. The first thing I like to explain is the punishment that people would receive in the event that they did this. I mean, if somebody on the street came up to somebody else and they spat in their face or they hit them with their fist or they slapped them with their hands, something like that, what would happen? What would be the punishment that would be executed against this individual? Well, according to the records that I've been able to find, these are the punishments that people would experience if they did these things on the street at the time of the Lord Jesus. If somebody hit somebody else with their fist, then they would receive a fine. So if you approached somebody and you just simply punched them in the face with your fist, then you would potentially be arrested, you would be put on trial, and then you would be fined in the event that you were found guilty. And the fine was four denarii, or the equivalent of four days' labor. That was the fine that people would experience if they punched somebody in the face or they beat somebody else with their fists. That's the fine that they would have to pay. Now, if you hit somebody with the palm of your hand, if you slapped someone, if you hit them with your palm, then that was considered to be an insult. It was more than just being angry with somebody. It was a way of insulting someone else. And the fine that you would experience if you slapped somebody in the face was 200 denarii. 200 days labor. That was considered to be a lot of money at that time. Even today, how would you like to have a fine that would take you 200 days to work off? And during that time, if you wanted to have any money, you'd have to get another job. Now, it also says here in verse 67 that they spat in his face. Now, if you spit in somebody's face, there is another fine that you'll experience, and that is 400 denarii. That's over a year's labor. If you spit in somebody's face, then you are to be fined 400 denarii, 400 days labor. That was the seriousness of these offenses. And so when these people spit in his face, beat him with their fists, and slap him, then that means that these people are violating the law. They are violating the law. There's no law that permits them to do this. They are violating the law. And no one, apparently, no one is making an accusation against these people. No one is holding them accountable for what they are doing. 
They believe that not only is it acceptable to violate their own laws in order to convict the Lord Jesus, but some also believe that it is acceptable to beat him, spit in his face, and slap him, do these kinds of things, and that they should be able to get away with that and not be held accountable themselves. And so I just wanted to point these things out. Now, there were a couple of laws that they were violating in addition to just simply slapping him and beating him, and that is that a person who was condemned to death was not to be beaten beforehand. In other words, since Jesus was condemned to death, death was bad enough. There's no reason, there's no circumstance that would make it appropriate to beat him in advance. If he is going to be executed, then according to the laws of the Sanhedrin, he is to be treated appropriately and not beaten beforehand. Another law that they were violating was that the judges were to remain humane and kind. That was an official law of the Sanhedrin that they were violating, in addition to hitting him with their fists and slapping him with the palms of their hands and spitting on him. They were also to remain humane and kind in a general way, and they were violating that. Now, please understand that my purpose in presenting this study is not to point my finger at the Pharisees or the Sadducees who lived at that time in history, who were participating in the nation of Israel at this time. This was an exclusive group of people, and by my presenting this study, it can be very easy to assume that every Sadducee, that every Pharisee, that every person, every Jew who did not believe in Jesus would have wanted to participate in this. And that is definitely not true. Just because these people behaved this way doesn't mean that everyone would have behaved this way. In fact, I believe that there is plenty of evidence to show that the vast majority of the people in Israel would not have condoned these actions. One of the best forms of evidence that we have is that they were doing this at night in their own private residence. I mean, if the majority of the people would have condoned this, they could have done this during the day. They could have done this in public. They could have done this during the daytime. They could have gotten a good night's sleep. They didn't need to do this in the middle of the night. But I believe that that shows us that that gives us the best evidence to show that the majority of the people who were there, many of whom or most of whom would not have even believed that Jesus was the Messiah, that they would not have approved. And so I think it's very important to point this out because it's very easy to condemn all of the religious leaders, all of the people who had a religious attitude. It's very easy to condemn them and not see the whole picture, not see the whole circumstance at hand. Now, what could possibly motivate a person to behave this way? Again, I explained in the previous programs that they were motivated to do this because they were afraid that all of the people were going to follow Jesus and not them. Of course, there's great risk of this. I began this study with the miracle that Jesus performed when he resurrected Lazarus from the dead, and that's what initiated this conspiracy against the Lord Jesus. So they were worried that people would start to follow Jesus and not them. That was a concern. But they were also concerned that the Romans were going to come and they were going to take these people who were in positions of authority, and they were supposed to maintain the peace there in the community. And if they failed to do that, then the Romans would come and take away their place. They would remove them from their positions there in the Sanhedrin. That was a substantial risk for them. And there was also the risk that the people 
would start a revolution. And if they did that, then the Romans may come in and just simply wage war against the people there and take away the entire nation entirely, that that was a risk that they were facing. And so they believed that they were justified in what they were doing because of these risks that they were faced with. Now, please understand that they did have their convictions, but Jesus had his convictions also. They had their beliefs. Jesus had his beliefs. Jesus was obviously not going to let go of his beliefs, and so they believed that it was better for Jesus to die for his beliefs than for them to die for their beliefs, and so they made their decisions on that basis. Now, what would motivate a person to go in this direction? I mean, if a person has made a decision to live in obedience to the Mosaic law, to pursue righteousness, to pursue holiness, to be a righteous individual before their God, and to never violate any of the laws that God gave, and in addition to that, the laws that they established to help them ensure that they would never come within the boundaries of possibly violating any of the laws of God. I mean, what happened? What happened to these people? Why were they not sincere to their beliefs? Why were they not true to their beliefs? Apparently, there was not enough depth of character. There was not enough fortitude within these individuals to help them resist this temptation, even in the face of such risk. I believe it's important for us to see that they did not have the true fortitude that you would expect them to have, and that this is acceptable, that this is understandable, first and foremost, because these are people who are spiritually dead, they do not have the life of God indwelling within them. Don't forget that salvation was not made available to humanity until after Jesus died and rose from the dead, and so because of that, there was no way for anyone's heart to ever be changed. It was not possible for the disciples to experience a change. It was not possible for the religious Pharisees to experience a change or the Sanhedrin members. No one could experience a transformation in the deepest part of their being that would direct them, that would lead them in a way of life such that they would find it trivial to say no to sin. Please understand that everybody here is spiritually dead. No one truly knows the Lord. That's one thing that I want to point out. But the other thing that I want to point out is that they were pursuing obedience to the law. They were pursuing a life of repentance and obedience with the intent or with the belief that this would reduce the sin in their life. And that's a reasonable assumption. People often assume that if they will repent and obey before their God, if they will repent from their sins and they will obey God's commandments, then they will find a reduction of sin in their lives. But this is not true. The law was not given in order to reduce the amount of sin in anybody's life. It was given to increase the amount of sin in people's lives. And this happens in four fundamental ways. The first way that this happens is through the natural rebellion of humanity. And I don't think that these people were dealing with that. There are other people who deal with this. And that is, if you go to somebody and say, now don't be doing such and such, then they will naturally rebel against that and say, hey, you know, I feel like I'm a relatively independent person. I don't think you should be telling me what I can do or can't do. And so just to show it, I'm going to go ahead and violate your command anyway, just to prove the fact that I am my own person. In a sense, I am my own God. That's one way that the law can stir up sin in a person's heart. The other way was best described by the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans when he spoke about coveting. 
that he would have not known what it was to truly covet until the law was presented to him that said, Do not covet. And that stirred up within him every covetous desire. And some people respond in this way. People can experience more sin in their life when you tell them, Hey, you know what? Don't covet that. And you say to yourself, Okay, sure, no problem. The commandment is do not covet, and so I'm not going to covet that. That thing over there, that thing which certainly has an appeal to it, and then all of a sudden you find yourself coveting. That's another way that the law stirs up sin. Now, if a person believes that they have found a way to live in obedience to the commandments of God, then truly they're just deceiving themselves. I mean, the Lord Jesus spent a lot of time during his ministry explaining to people that there was no way that they were truly going to be able to succeed in their pursuit of living in obedience to the commandments of God. And so if a person believes that they have found a way to accomplish that, then there is another sin that is going to be stirred up within them, and that is the sin of religious pride. That's the next sin that they are going to experience. And this is a very difficult sin for people to struggle with. And the reason why is because it's so deceptive. You don't normally see this sin in yourself. It's everybody else around you who sees this sin that you are expressing. So the sin of religious pride is very deceiving, it's very deceptive, and it's very difficult for people to recognize this sin within themselves. They can see it easily within other people because other people will say, hey, you know what, I'm obedient. But you know them, and you know full well that they are not as impressive as they think they are. And so you look at that individual in the context of their own personal pride that they have developed out of nothing, out of their own deception, out of deceiving themselves. This is the sin of religious pride, and it then gets manifested in a more profound way when they relate to other people as if they are successful, but these other people are not. They are holy, but these other people are not. But don't worry, we'll try to help you. We'll try to help you become more holy. We'll try to help you overcome these sins that we think we've overcome. But in reality, we really haven't overcome them either. We've just deceived ourselves into thinking that we have. That's the sin of religious pride. But there's another sin that gets stirred up within us when we pursue a life under the law. And that is a result of not being loved by our God. You see, until you obey his commandments completely and perfectly you are not obeying his commandments completely and perfectly, which means that there are some sins that he is holding against you. If there are some sins that he is holding against you, then you are not completely loved by your God. You are not completely accepted by your God. He is somewhat disgusted with you. And so because of that, you are not going to be able to turn to him, to trust in him, to rely on him, and to rest In him, you're not going to be able to experience the peace of God of him loving and accepting you perfectly. But you have a need to be loved and accepted. You have a deep need for this. And there is only one person who can meet these deep needs that you have within you. That is your God. But if he's not doing that because you believe your sin is a barrier between you and your God, then you are not going to have these needs met by your God. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do with the desires of your heart? What are you going to do with the emptiness that is within you? What's going to happen? Well, you're going to be an easy target. You're going to be an easy target for sin because one of the ways that sin tempts us is it tempts us by advertising that if you commit this sin, if you engage in whatever sin it may be, 
then somebody will love you. Somebody will accept you. You will have a place in the unbeliever's world or whatever. That is the temptation of sin. The temptation of sin is generally not the sins themselves. The temptation is that the needs that you have for love and acceptance, meaning, purpose, safety, security, respect, honor, the needs that you have will be met, supposedly, by committing these sins. That's the deception. And that is how the law of God will separate you from your God, which will then encourage you and direct you to the sin of the world. And that is how the law will stir up more sin in a person's life. So a person may be quite sincere. And let me tell you, there is no one that I've ever known who was more sincere than the Pharisees, especially those in the time of the Lord Jesus. Those men were committed. Those men were devoted. And there has never been anyone who has been more devoted, more determined to be righteous and to stop sinning. No one has ever been able to compare with the enthusiasm and the determination of these people. But please understand that that is not enough. That is not enough, because what it did is it directed them more into the law, and the law stirred up sin in their hearts, which prevented them from seeing the living God when he was standing right in front of them. It prevented them from turning to him for who he is. It prevented them from receiving what he came to offer. Instead, they were so determined to get rid of all of their sin by their own efforts that they rejected the one who offered them mercy for what they could not do if they would only be honest enough to recognize that they were not perfect, that they failed. Then they could have received the mercy of God. And some of them did. We know that in the book of Acts, in the book of Acts chapter 15, as an example, there were believers in the Lord Jesus as the Messiah who were Pharisees. And certainly they still struggled with things of the law. They believed that the Gentiles should be circumcised and live in obedience to the law of Moses. They obviously needed to grow a little bit in their faith. But my point is to show that some of the Pharisees believed in Jesus. Some of them pursued the truth, struggled with issues of the law, but they still pursued the Lord Jesus for who he is. And so I wanted to point these things out in the context of the trial, just so you understand that the people who were participating in this trial of the Lord Jesus, they were an exclusive group of people and did not represent everyone. And the struggles that they had, the sin that they were struggling with, especially as it was displayed in the example that we have, is to be expected to a certain degree, because even though they were devoted to a life of repentance and obedience, to a life of never sinning, that devotion was not enough. That commitment was not enough. Their determination was not going to be adequate. They needed to experience a change of heart, just like everybody else did. They were no different than anyone else. It was just that they were expressing their sins in a different way. Now, please understand that they were under great pressure. They were under great risk because their position, their livelihoods were dependent on people not following Jesus. They depended on people not believing Jesus because if they believed in Jesus, if the people began to believe in Jesus, then sure enough, their personal welfare might be at risk. Certainly, there may be revolution and the Romans might come and take power, but there were other things. There were other economic factors that they were personally faced with. I deal with these things today. 
I am teaching the scriptures. I am teaching the scriptures on the radio and in local fellowships. I am a threat to many Christian leaders. The reason why I'm a threat to many Christian leaders is because I don't teach the same things that they teach. I just don't. There are many things that I believe and that I teach that are not compatible with a lot of what is being presented in the Christian world today. Now, fortunately, there are many things that we do agree on. There are many things that we can agree on. And for the most part, these commonalities allow us to work together to a limited extent for sure, but at least to some extent. But the fact of the matter is that there are many people who are paying attention to the work that I am doing. That's a reality. And the number of people who are listening to me is growing. That number has been increasing, and it is going to continue to increase. And after a while, it's possible some of these people might start supporting the work that I'm doing financially. And if they do that, they might take away from the financial support that they've been giving to other Christian leaders. That's a reality. People sometimes have to make decisions. They have to discriminate with what they have available. They have to decide what they are really going to support. If you want others to tell people about the Lord Jesus and the Scriptures, then help them out. Help them do that. Help them accomplish that. But when these decisions are made, people can feel threatened by this. There are many Christian leaders who might feel threatened by me because they are concerned that people who would normally donate to them are going to start donating to me instead. And because of that, I can be a threat to their place, to their position, to their livelihood. I can be a big threat to these people. That's a reality of life, and I have experienced this quite a bit, and I do expect to continue to experience this in the future. It is not my intention to take away anything from anybody else. I am only doing what my God has told me to do, and that is to give all that he has given to me. This is the end of the study that I have done on the arrest and the trials of the Lord Jesus. I would like to encourage you to take the time to look at the other work that I have done regarding the ministry of the Lord Jesus, the miracles that he performed, the things that he said, the things that he did. I have presented his ministry from the perspective of the people who lived at that time, from the perspective of their beliefs and how they would have understood what he said and what he did. And so do take the time to review the work that I have done. In addition to that, I've done many radio programs where I've spoken about the resurrection of salvation, the resurrection we experience right now and today and will carry us on into eternity once we see our God in heaven. You've been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 38353, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80937. Or use the donation link on our website, livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net Thank you,